First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from your sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This year we've been going through one of the largest themes in the entire Bible, and that is the theme of the kingdom of God. We've been talking about a lot of aspects of the kingdom of God, what it's like, who the king is, what life is like for us under his rule and reign. Today, I want to look at the New Testament and the theme of being an alien and a stranger, a foreigner and an exile, and how we are to live in this kingdom of God as foreigners and aliens in the kingdom of the world while we still live in the world. Does anybody remember anything from a sermon I preached a couple of weeks ago? This is me testing your memory and my own. Does anybody remember I preached a couple weeks ago and I talked about the spirit, or I'm sorry, I talked about the kingdom of God being at war, and I developed some themes off of Sam's sermon the week before. Does anybody remember? In the back, Dave. You, you remembered my anecdotal story about backpacking like an idiot and carrying a pack of 50 pounds and deciding to go by myself on the AT for five days. Yeah, I go hard, and, and I ended up going home. So there you go. That's the lesson in that story. What else did you remember? Yes, ma'am, in the back. Okay, being prepared spiritually. That's right, that we need to be prepared. Yes? Okay. Willing to wage war as Jesus did and willing to lay down our lives. I noticed you looking down. Were you looking at some previous notes? <laughs> l l look, at, look at how those come into play. Uh, our hope is in Jesus, not in political systems. I said something that was quite tantalizing on that topic. Does anybody remember what it was? I know people remember what it was because I've been hearing about it for two weeks. Should we vote? Were you here? <laughs> From me? Or someone else? Oh, okay. You guys need to stop. Stop. You're going to get me in trouble. What, stays, what happens in Asheville stays in Asheville, okay? Uh-huh. Again. All right. Mark chapter 1. <laughs> yes. I'm going to venture into what I tantalized out a couple of weeks ago, and that is 
the topics of voting and how it relates to us in the kingdom of God. First, let's start here, though, in Mark chapter 1. This is, I think, the groundwork that we need to remember as we discuss any topic revolving around the kingdom of God. Verse 14, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Then as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Jesus' simple, yet radical call to follow him into the kingdom of God is the foundation of everything. They didn't quite get it. They didn't fully understand or grasp what it meant to follow Jesus into this kingdom of God that had now come near to them. But eventually they would. And so the question for us, I believe, today is how do we follow Jesus under that same calling into his kingdom to live under his rule and his reign and his authority for him to be king while we still live in the midst of all the other kingdoms around us, all the other rulers, all the other authorities, all the other rulers and kings, and some of them are ourselves. How do we do that? How do we live as aliens and strangers while in the kingdoms of the world? Today, I want to focus in on how we think about politics of the world while being citizens of God's kingdom. How many of you have ever heard a sermon in a church about the topic of politics? How many of you have ever heard a sermon about which candidate or political party to vote for? people. How many of you have heard a sermon asking you to consider abstaining from voting? Okay, a few hands as well. I heard something a while back from another preacher that really stuck with me. He said, the gospel that you preach determines the types of disciples that you make. To put it another, word, another way, what we win them with is what we win them to. That really resonated with me because from the inception of me following Jesus, I was very connected to the Great Commission. That was the gospel that I heard. A gospel that sent me out to go baptize of all nations. And that is a part of the gospel. But as I continued to make disciples, it made me think, what kind of gospel am I preaching? What kinds of disciples am I making? And guess what? That process is never finished. We're constantly learning from Jesus how to follow him. We're never done following him. When you feel that you are done following him or you've figured out even some point of doctrine or theology, it's a dangerous place. We need to constantly stay humble and remain the very essence of that word, disciple, a learner, a student. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, when he says in verse 11 that we should live, he's urging us to live as foreigners and exiles and to abstain from sinful desires. The language here 
Depending on your English version, it might be translated as sojourners and pilgrims, temporary residents and foreigners, foreigners and exiles, aliens and strangers. The language here means literally to be one who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there next to or by the side of the natives. The other word means to live in a place without the right of citizenship, to be an alien. Have you considered that? That God calls us to live by the side of the natives of the world. But to live in the place of the world without the right to its citizenship. What does that mean exactly? I want to state clearly up front, I cannot dogmatically tell you what that means in the issues of voting. But I do want to prompt our thinking. I want to prompt questions. I want to prompt perhaps some things that we have not considered before. This is a Bible project video I want to take a look at called The Way of the Exile that I think captures some great themes as we look at the narrative of the Bible because the idea of being aliens and strangers is not new for the New Testament. It's actually something that's traced all the way back to the beginning of the story of the Bible. Let's take a look. In the year 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian Empire. And a year later, the city and the temple were plundered and burned. Thousands of Israelites were taken from their homes and relocated all over ancient Babylon. They became exiles. And so now they're a minority surrounded by a new culture with new gods. Now, some Israelites chose to resist Babylon by revolting or withdrawing. Others gave in, adopting the Babylonian way of life and accepting these new gods as their own. And you might think those are your only two options, but the prophet Jeremiah told them to do something totally different and surprising. To settle in, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, and most surprisingly, to seek the well-being of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So this is like a third way. Yeah, it's not compromise or revolt. What does it look like? Well, there's a whole book of the Bible that explores that question. It's the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of the Israelites taken into the Babylonian exile. And because Daniel had a royal heritage and education, he was recruited along with some friends to work in the high court of Babylon. Work for the enemy? That would be compromise. Or they could gain the king's trust and take him down from the inside. That's what you might expect. But instead, they take Jeremiah's advice and choose the third way. They serve the king of Babylon, taking on Babylonian names and even clothing style. So they seek Babylon's well-being, but in doing so, aren't they just giving up their heritage? It could seem that way, but actually they aren't. As you read on, the story focuses on moments where they draw the line and they choose faithfulness to their God and resist the influence of Babylon. So for example? Well, like when they're commanded to bow down to the idol of Babylon and give allegiance to the king as if he's a God. Ah, they won't go that far. Right, this is where you see their true loyalty. It requires them to critique Babylon's idolatry of power, its arrogance, its injustice, but they do it non-violently by laying down their lives. And so God vindicates Daniel and his friends for their faithfulness. So they would serve Babylon, seek its well-being, 
but their loyalty was always to God. Yeah, this is what Jeremiah was envisioning. The way of the exile is a combination of loyalty and also subversion. So there's still exiles, but don't Daniel and his friends long to go home? Yes. In fact, Daniel believed that God was going to send a ruler to bring down Babylon and create a true kingdom of peace. Ah, when did he think this ruler would come? Well, at first he thought within his lifetime, but then he had a dream where he found out that after Babylon would come another oppressive empire, then another, then another. And so Babylon did fall and Israel did get to go back home, but now they're ruled by Babylon's successors. And so they maintained the mindset of an exile, waiting for their true home to come to them. And they continued the same practice of loyalty and subversion to any new versions of Babylon that came along. And this leads us to the time of Jesus. The empire of his day was Rome, ruled by Caesar. Now, some Israelites wanted to resist, while others gave in and adopted Roman culture and its gods. But watch Jesus carry on the subversive loyalty of Daniel. Like when he said, it's fine to pay taxes to Caesar, give him back his coins. But then he said, don't mistake Caesar for God. God's the one who deserves your total life and allegiance. So the way of Jesus is this same mix of loyalty and subversion. Yeah, like he taught his followers to love and even bless their enemies. But he also got arrested for speaking out against the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem and Rome. He critiqued their idolatry of power and it cost him his life. But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead as the true king of the nations. The king that Daniel had hoped for. Right. And Jesus promised that one day his kingdom would prevail. And so until then, his followers are living in a type of exile. Yeah, this is why the apostle Peter calls followers of Jesus foreigners and exiles. He told them to respect the authorities of whatever place you happen to live, to honor and love all people. But then he reminds them that this isn't their true home. They're still living in Babylon. But well, they're not living in Babylon. Babylon doesn't exist anymore. Or does it? In the Bible, Babylon has become a symbol that describes any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. Okay, so we all live and work in Babylon. How do I seek the well-being of Babylon while my allegiance is to someone greater? Yes, Jesus' followers are called to live in that tension between loyalty and subversion. That's the way of the exile. I wanted to read this quote as we're thinking about foreigners and exiles. The ministry of Jesus compels Christians to influence the world, not by wielding political power, but rather by living exemplary lives and practicing prophetic witness in a fallen world. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Romans chapter 13. We will see this theme all over the New Testament if we're paying attention. And there is this section of the book of Romans in chapter 12 and 13 that I think represents this really obvious dichotomy of these two kingdoms, these two worlds, and these two ages. Romans 13, verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, 
For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, and consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for the rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. After telling the Christians in Rome in chapter 12 how they are to lead a kingdom life in the kingdom of God, he begins to tell them how they are to interact with the kingdoms of the world around them here in chapter 13. And I think that this is ultimately what tests my faith. There is no authority except that which God has established. Does that include the Nazi regime? Or Attila the Hun? Does that include any of the oppressive political systems that are currently active in our world today? Does that include the Democratic Republic of the United States? Either God is sovereignly ruling the nations of humans or he is not. This is ultimately the crux of faith that we are in. Because what we believe about that question, God's sovereignty, I believe will inform how we make other decisions in how we live in the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of the world. I borrowed this from a book and a friend of mine, but I think that this is helpful. This chart, diagram, pictogram represents a concept, a concept that I typically refer to as two kingdom theology. Some people will call it two ages or whatever. In the arc of the Bible, we have the beginning epoch, the beginning age of the creation, the garden kingdom, when man walked with God in the cool of the day, and whatever that means. Then, two pages later, we don't get to spend much time in that garden in the story of the Bible. The fall of man occurs. And woman, I'm using man, you know, representatively here of humankind, but not meaning to be patriarchal or chauvinistic. Okay, so the fall of humankind. And then we are entered into this kingdom of darkness in the world. In the fall, however, there is a promise of a coming Messiah, and ultimately, Abraham would lead to Israel, which is to draw all nations to God. Then the time of Jesus appears in the biblical timeline and story arc. And he says that he came to bring in a new kingdom, a kingdom not of this world, and that he would usher in a new age, the beginning of eternal life. And New Testament authors will refer to this age as the last days. The already, but not yet. 
the age when Jesus calls people into his Father's kingdom, but they still exist in the kingdoms of this world. And this is what Paul is talking about here in Romans 12 and 13. And we see this same concept in other Pauline writings, Galatians chapter 1, 3 through 5. Grace and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. As for you and for me, we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The biblical picture is that the kingdoms of this world are ruled by the Satan, by the deceiver and the adversary. All kingdoms of man under this age are ruled by Satan. Jesus is the ruler of his kingdom. And he says that eventually, at his second coming, at the resurrection, all of his enemies will be put at his footstool. That the kingdom of God would be all that remains, and there would be a complete separation, a complete fulfillment of the kingdom of God. We are in this overlap, this already, but not yet. And it's difficult. So let's take a look, a brief sampling of this two-kingdom idea in Romans 12 and 13. Romans 12 tells the Christians in the kingdom of God to offer yourself as a living sacrifice, that your love must be sincere, that we must hate what is evil and cling to what is good, that we must bless those who persecute us, that we are to live in harmony with one another, that we are to associate with people of low position, meaning what? We're not in a power struggle. We don't care about status of the world. That we do not repay anyone evil for evil. That we don't take revenge. That we are not overcome with evil, but instead we overcome evil with what? Good. We don't choose the lesser of evils. We overcome evil with good, primarily through the vehicle of our personal sacrifice. And that we do no harm to our neighbor. And who did Jesus say was our neighbor? Every human being. There's no such thing as an enemy in the kingdom of God. We're all neighbors. But, he says, in this other kingdom, under this other age, under the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the way that we're supposed to interact with those kingdoms as kingdom of God people is that we would be subject to the governing authorities. We don't rebel, we don't revolt, we don't overthrow, but we don't bow down either. We're willing to draw a line, just as Daniel and his friends were in Babylon, that if the governing authorities challenge us to submit to some other god or some other idol, we would peacefully, nonviolently, 
be willing to lay down our lives as our act of protest, as our act of what Tim calls subversion. Paul says that the authorities that exist have been established by God. Wow, that takes a lot of faith sometimes. He says not to rebel against the authority. He says that the rulers that God establishes in the kingdom of the world do so to keep some relative form of peace or harmony, to have some system of justice for those who do wrong. That in this realm, those people can use the sword for wrath, and that rulers punish the wrongdoers, and that we are to pay taxes to support their God-allowed role. Did you know that you not paying taxes is not just illegal to the kingdoms of the world, but it's actually contrary to the kingdom of God? Why? Because he's called us to submit, because we surrender to a greater king. This is the scene where Jesus is asked about the temple tax. Give to Caesars what is Caesars. We are under a higher rule. And so here we find ourselves in this middle place. Understanding the difference, Burns will say, between the present age and the age to come is so important to what I believe is the role of the kingdom when it comes to engaging with the world of politics and the world in general, that it is, in my opinion, both Burns that I'm quoting and myself, is the linchpin of how we operate in the world. This concept of the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world being separate but being overlapped in our lives is the linchpin to how we understand our engagement with the worlds around us, including politics. This two-kingdom theology informs how we view things like nonviolence. It informs how we view things like political activity or disengagement. It informs what it looks like to love our neighbor and to determine who is our enemy. It's no one, right? This can be a challenging, controversial topic for many in our culture. Because, as I've talked about before, we live in a culture of Christian nationalism where the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world have been bled into one kingdom. That is the basic argument here, right? That's what I'm preaching. They are not one kingdom. They have not been since the resurrection of Christ. And nor will there ever be any nation of man synonymous with the kingdom of God until his second coming. So as I'm dialoguing about this with people, as we're working through these passages together, there's a lot of feelings that come up for some, all of us, right, if we're honest. We have personal stake in this. We have family members, and we have loved ones, and we have people that are all intermeshed into these kingdoms that are overlapping, and it's hard to know how do I do this? How do I appropriate this? If I think this or do that, doesn't it disrespect and defame that or them? And we get into a place of struggle. I want to encourage us to go back to Jesus' calling to follow him. Because we are struggling doesn't mean that it's bad. Don't run away from it. I did want to show a clip 
of a recent video of a dialogue that me and my good brother Michael Thompson were having recently about this topic. He said it was fine for me to play this. But I think that this represents an average, normal, very relatable struggle on how we think about these kinds of topics when it comes to the kingdom of God and politics. The reason I wanted to show it, Michael and I were discussing the passage in 1 Peter 1 about being aliens and strangers. And I, in case you don't know Michael, he, he's an animated personality. He tends to emote well, thoroughly, transparently. And I think that's what's so valuable for us as we are emoting and struggling and wrestling and considering things, perhaps for the first time, perhaps not. Let's have a listen, and hopefully it can help us as we are processing this for ourselves. While you were talking, the main thing that I was going through was like, this guy is trying to tell me to not vote. He's telling me to support the other side by not voting. I'm basically giving all of those people who are voting the power here. And like you said, it's all about power. And this is my worry is like, I am losing power by like, I mean, which is true, but I'm losing power by giving up my ability to vote. And I have so many things that my friends, my, the people that I love so dearly, and this is where the anger comes from. How dare this person sitting in front of me tell me that it's God's will that I don't help the people who are oppressed by the government, that I, I, I am sure that that is what is happening, that the government is harming in very specific ways that I know about uh, all of these people that I care about, uh, all of my friends of color, all of my friends that are trans, all of my friends that are gay, all of my friends that are not me, you know, whoever the oppressed people are. This is my critical theory coming out and like the way that my brain has to like work through. These are the things I feel and then I have to work through them whenever I hear the new stuff. I go, I have to work through these through the lens of Christ, not through the lens of my schooling. Um, because I am in a place of power as a cis white heterosexual man. Uh, and therefore, I need to use this power to do good, to uh, give the same opportunities to those who are oppressed, those people who are the things that I did not just list that I am, uh, that I have, to um, uh, choose whether or not to follow Jesus, this is where Jesus is injected into it, to follow Jesus the same way that I got the ability to choose. Um, and so it was a lot of feelings of outrage and, and defensiveness because it, it makes me think about, and a lot of, another thing of this is, is the shame and the fear that will come uh, from other people when I tell them I'm not voting. If I, if, you know, if I, pursue this and I go, well, and I make the conclusion, okay, voting isn't really going to be a thing that I should really do. It's, it's pointless if I am just trusting in God. Um, and, and, and somebody who is, you know, not, uh, or like so anybody, whether or not they are in power, whomever is going to ask me, are you voting? And they're not a disciple or they are a disciple. I don't know. 
and I'm gonna say no, and they're gonna say why not, and I'm gonna say oh, well, you know, look, at this. I have faith that God is gonna be sovereign regardless, and they're gonna say okay, dude, but like, wouldn't God be sovereign with your vote, with your input? You know, I was thinking of those conversations that I would have in the future in the moment that I was talking to you, and uh, I was like, oh man, it's gonna be so obvious to them that I don't care about what they care about, and I don't care about them, and they're gonna think that I don't love them, and I do love them, and I want them to think that I love them, and know that I love them, so I will show that by doing this thing that is largely inconsequential to me if I'm like, hey, you know, voting is whatever, why not vote? If it means nothing to me, if if I know that God's gonna be sovereign, why not participate in it? And then the question is like, ah, but dang it, I can't do that because then I defeat the whole purpose of me not voting because the whole thing of it is that if I have sovereignty, if God has sovereignty, then why would I vote? Because, like, it doesn't matter with or without my vote. Why would I be voting? Am I going to be voting for a thing that's selfishly? Like, ah, oh, man, is that... And so I have this, this internal conflict of, like, I want to follow Jesus, but I also want my friends to like me. And it, it was just, like, having to work through that was tough. And the other thing I think I worked through was, um, I don't say how I worked through them, but, but these are the things. Uh, the other thing was like thinking, you know, am I just changing my thought processes because somebody told me? Or am I being actually changed by the Word of God? Because oh, I've read this before, it didn't make me think this stuff before. Is it really the Word of God that's trying to change my mind, or is it John Sherwood? Uh, because I wasn't thinking this stuff before. And now I am, and oh man, am I being my mind being corrupted by, by John, this this about this thing that because I you, you know, I haven't heard it anywhere else. So why should I think that you're right if no other Christian context or book or thing that I've ever read or experienced or heard has told me this? Why do I think that you're correct or whatever? But like. You know, the scripture's right there. Like, like and this is how I worked through it. How I worked through it, how I worked through, you know, uh, oh man, I am, you know, uh, is this any good? Is this going to be um, worth it? Is this going to be, uh, like, what my friend's going to say? I'm trying to go for justice and all of these people and everything. Was like, with the critical theory, the reality is like, well none of these people are more oppressed by anything other than sin. Uh, and the way that I'm going to help people overcome sin is by living uh, an exemplary life as a disciple. And no amount of voting is going to change, or even like political power towards the, my own ideologies thinking it's good, is going to change um, like a person's ability or freedom of choice to sin. Uh because, like, they're still going to be hating the other. They're going to be thinking that there is an other. I'm right now thinking that there is an other. Oh, man, there I go again. Um, thinking that that is the case. And I'm not going to be able to change their lives by any of this. And this is kind of how I work through the, the critical theory stuff. Is, like, um, no matter who a person is, they still need to submit to God. And if they don't like that, and they can use their... Um, idea of like, well, I'm black or I'm trans or I'm gay or whatever, um, as like, oh, this is the reason why it's a lot harder for me to submit to God. I mean, I don't know. That's that's silly to think that. Um, to think that it's harder for one person to submit to God than another. Um, 
because like I think everybody finds it like very difficult uh, over the course of their life. Uh, and however more difficult it is, doesn't mean that Jesus is any more or less powerful to save them. Um, so that's how I worked through that one. The idea of other people, what are they gonna say or whatever, uh, uh, was like, oh, well, um, the, having those conversations, it's like, yeah, what am I gonna say? Like, I'm not voting because, and it comes up the question, do I really believe that God is sovereign? Do I really believe that that what I'm saying is true? And in this imaginary conversation in this moment, uh, like, is that true? Like, in this moment, no, I don't believe that. Like, I'm really struggling with believing, oh man, God is sovereign over all of the things that I'm thinking about. Like, God is sovereign over Nazi Germany. God is sovereign over, I don't know, America right now. Uh, like, whatever. God is sovereign over all of this. And he allows these evil to happen, and yet God is still good. That's really tough. That's hard to believe. And yet, I... If I believe the word of God, I'll have to believe that it's true. And so I just kind of chalk that one up to like, gonna be working on that one for a while. Uh, and to some degree, uh, I'll have to have that, at some point I'll have to have the conversation and I'll have to, you know, be open with my struggle. Um, with whatever that is, whether or not I vote for another person in the 2024 20, uh, candidacy or whatever, or don't or whatever, I'll have to have a conversation with somebody probably who says who are you voting for or are you going to vote or anything and if I go no or yes I better have a friggin reason why I'm saying no or yes we better have a reason <laughs> a freaking reason for why we say yes or no right a reason beyond just this is our cultural duty this is what's expected. This is what everybody does, right? And these are complicated, nuanced waters. Um, but I think for many of us, it's probably simpler than we think. How do we live as exiles in this world? I think when it comes to politics, here's a principle that I think is very simple. If it causes you to sin, cut it off and gouge it out. That is very plain. If you cannot engage in the civic arena and the political landscape that we're in, in a way that is righteous and upholds the ethic and standards of God's kingdom, then you need to not do it. My assumption is that probably covers a lot of us. Just to be blunt, most of us don't have the spiritual maturity to engage in the political process in a way that represents Christ, because it is nuanced. And to do it as a foreigner and, a, and an exile is not just, oh, let me jump on Facebook and tell you what I think. And then you have a 103 comment long post that is arguing and bickering between Christians. This is actually quite simple for the vast majority of us. You need to disengage, cut off and gouge out and throw away that which causes you to stumble. For the rest of us, I want to challenge you to get educated, to wrestle with your positions on the Word of God. I'm not talking about political positions, right-to-life positions, and so on and so forth. Because actually, the more educated you get, the more you see the ruler of the kingdom of air. 
People under the lordship of the ruler of the air will use your faith against you. They will use your faith and what you care about to serve their own ends. And you and I often will blindly, unknowingly, unwittingly support that. For me, personally, I cannot engage in U.S. politics without compromising the standards of Jesus' kingdom. So I choose to abstain. That's a very culturally relativized position. There are some people in some governmental systems that legally cannot abstain. You must vote and participate in the civic arena if you are a citizen of that country. What do Christians do there? They're in a different contextual position. So they have to navigate what it looks like to follow Jesus in their circumstances, just like people who are in countries that require them legally to enlist in the military. What are Christians going to do there? To me, I think the question that needs to guide all of us in whatever context or kingdom of the world that we find ourselves in, and we have representation internationally right here in this room of people who are citizens of other contexts and other countries, other kingdoms of this world. The question is, can I engage in that kingdom of the world and remain loyal to all that Jesus did and taught? If the answer is no, then you need to disengage. And as you engage, you need to keep asking yourself that question. I need to keep asking myself that question. You need to ask yourself as this political cycle begins to ramp up. I guess we just had one that closed down. Can you remain loyal to all that Jesus did and taught? Maybe step one is figuring out what Jesus did and taught. That's step one. Get into the Word of God. Read it with fresh eyes. Don't read it with a nationalistic lens of, oh, you know, like my good Catholic friend that I've quoted, we're not actually friends, but the Catholic theologian that I've quoted in the past who says, when I meet God, I expect to meet him as an American. This, it's, he actually is not being sarcastic. His lens is that the political ideology of America and the kingdom of God are synonymous. And listen, I think that there's a lot of great things in the kingdom of the world of the United States of America, things that I get to benefit from, things that I enjoy, the freedoms that others have bled and died for. That doesn't make it any less the kingdom of the world, though. And I want to comment on the political disengagement position. If you or I choose to not vote, it can be critiqued as saying, well, that's good for you, cis, white male, person of power and majority influence. It costs you very little not to vote. But what about those on the fringes of society? What about the marginalized and oppressed people groups? That they're perhaps more ready to feel and experience the sways of the kingdoms of the world. And so how is my disengagement affecting them? I think this is a valid critique, something that we have to wrestle with. However, I still think the guiding principle is the same. Can I remain loyal to all that Jesus did and taught? And that's something that each one of us and collectively, communally, as a body of believers need to wrestle with and figure out. Is it a sin to vote? No. 
Will I vote? No. Could I change my mind at some point? Possibly. Would I encourage you to vote? Ooh, it depends. It depends. Based on what happened in 2020, for most of y'all, I'd say no. No. I hope that we can actually represent the kingdom of God much better. Much better. We, like Daniel and his friends, we, like Peter and the other early Christians, have to figure out how do we live as ambassadors and representatives of this alternative kingdom with this alternative politic to this alternative king live while in the midst of another kingdom. And right now we live in a kingdom that wants to use our faith against us for its own selfish hunger for power. So be cautious when people try to earn your vote because they say that they stand for something that you believe in, that you believe is an ethic of the kingdom of God. And it may very well be an ethic of the kingdom of God. But here's what I want to encourage. Just like nonviolence, pacifism is not passiveism. Christian nonviolence is not passive, it is active. Active peacemaking, going right to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who make peace. It is not a disengagement into passivity. It is not a disengagement and a withdrawal into the caves of Qumran. To take a non-political position and not vote doesn't mean I'm not active. What I'm doing right now is active. That I would speak out against the oppressors, the oppression and the injustices of the world around us, how I engage, how I try to bring the light of Christ and the kingdom of God to others is what we have to figure out. I choose to pray. I choose to submit. I choose not to rebel online with keyboard courage or anything else, but to engage actively with the weapons that Christ has given me which are not the weapons of the world. They're the weapons of the Spirit. Each of us have to wrestle through this. I fear, however, that some of us, perhaps most of us, have been going on about our Christian lives, never even really considering these things. And we have been blindly capitulating to the kingdoms of the world. And we have not been separate we have not been called out. We have not been aliens and foreigners. Would you pray with me as we close?